Well, it's been a while um, since we were in Mark's Gospel. And the series that we're involved in is called Jesus, the Raw Footage. We're taking Mark's Gospel, going verse by verse through that Gospel. Our goal is that we might present Jesus as He really is. Because our culture tries to paint him in so many different ways. And so we have gone back to these eyewitness accounts, and Mark being the very first of those eyewitness accounts is a very fast-moving gospel that minces no words. Words are significant. And it reads like uh, like fast-breaking news almost as you get into this gospel. But we want, to, we want to come to see and recognize Jesus for who he really is, not the cultural Jesus. Does that make sense? Because it's only that Jesus that really can change and transform our lives. And after all, what is God really after in our lives? But to change and transform our hearts until, until we begin to have a heart that looks like his. We begin to walk in the world in the way Jesus walked in the world because of something that's happening internally in us that's changing us and transforming us. So the real Jesus is the one who has the power to really transform and to, to change our lives. And so we come to a text, and I want to just read the text, and then I want to kind of go back and do a, a, just a very brief, quick review of kind of some places that we've been. But if you'll turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 12, we'll read that, those two verses first, just those two verses as our focus for our conversation today. So if you have your smartphone, just get your app out, okay? Right. Now, you can just read this on the front cover of the bulletin, too, by the way. You know. uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering unto him. Now, there are about four things in our introduction to Mark that I need to revisit for just a moment because they come into play in these two verses prominently. Number one, Mark makes a deliberate linking of the creation, the creation story with creation and the fall in the book of Genesis with the beginning of human history and, and the beginning of the gospel and the new humanity, which will be the, the church. So he's links. The very first word in Mark's text, you remember, is beginning. It's the first word in the text of Genesis. One in Hebrew, one in Greek. But Mark is clearly making a... He's, he's throwing us back into the creation story, the story of the creation, and the fall in the very beginning of his, of his gospel. Okay? Secondly... The theme of the, of the first chapter is the, is the word wilderness. Everything that takes place here takes place in the wilderness. And what Mark is saying to us, in, 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 he is inferring here that the world that the Son of God enters into is no longer a, gor- a garden, is it? It is a wilderness. It's a desolate place. It's a battleground, a spiritual 
battle, if you will. And you see that again here in this text where it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now the word drove is the word ekbalo in the, in the Greek, and it's used eight times in, gos- in the Gospel of Mark. The other seven times it's used in reference to Jesus casting a demon out of someone. So literally the translation is the Spirit of God cast Jesus, cast him out into the wilderness, into the lonely, desolate, isolated place where there is where he was hungry he was starving he his legitimate needs were not being met he's out in the wilderness and the scholars believe that what Jesus did was he went from the Jordan River where John had been baptizing and he went south straight south from the Jordan down alongside the the the, the Dead Sea into that region that was called Jeshimon which literally means the devastation literally nothing grows there And if you looked at a map of Israel of that time, even Israel in a more modern day, then you will see there is a region in that area of Palestine or or Israel where there are no cities, where there's nothing. Because it's just basically, it's basically just deserted, barren, rocky, hilly cliffs. And Jesus is out there in this lonely isolated desert, and and God ordains it. You see, the Spirit of God is the one who delivered him out into that wilderness, into the place of trial, so that he could be tempted, so he would encounter Satan, the adversary. So wilderness is the theme of chapter 1. And now, the key word in Mark is the word immediately. It's used 41 times in Mark's gospel, the word immediately, because everything happens, happens one thing after another with an almost immediate kind of a sense. And and the very first words of the text we just read, and immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. The word uthus, immediately, 41 times in Mark's gospel, eight times in chapter one, as Mark sets this, this, the, this, the drive, the move of the gospel up for us. Okay. And then there's a, a last thing I want to reference in, as we are looking at the gospel here, is that the gospel, the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. We've come back to that theme on several occasions. And, and when we introduced Mark's gospel, we were saying what is happening here is Mark is giving us the good news, not good advice and how to live or how to live up to God's standards. He's telling us there's something that's already been done. And the best illustration of that is if, if your city is under siege, you remember, if your city is under siege by some, some formidable foe, some army, you, you know, you, you would go and you would seek military advice. You would get military advisors. But if in fact, if in fact a king had come along and he had defeated your foe, he wouldn't be seeking advisors. He would, he would send out messengers to share that victory had been won, that the enemy had been defeated. Those messengers in that day and time were called Euangelion or Angelo, Angeloi. They were, they were angels or they were messengers of good news of what has already happened. And so what you have in this text, 
What Mark is telling us is that in the temptation of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus went out into battle for us in the wilderness. He went out into our wilderness in order to do battle with Satan, and he won. This was the first of his of this this very direct encounter that's recorded. But the scripture tells us that as he went into the wilderness, he was in his participle, he was continually being tempted by Satan. And yet he did not yield to that temptation, did he? Now Mark gives us a two-sentence version of the temptation. Now the other gospel writers give us a fuller. A, you know, a fuller account or a narrative of what happens. And so we know in the other Gospels that there were three sort of final last-ditch efforts by Satan in the wilderness to take God, to take Jesus away from his mission, if you will. So, so what Mark is telling us in the temptation of Jesus, that, that Jesus goes into battle for us in the wilderness. What I want you to do this morning, I want you to just see two things. I just want to just point out two things for you. Man, we could talk on the, the topic of temptation until we're blue in the face. And, and there are a lot of us in this room who are pretty much experts at it. Because if we're honest, we're tempted every day, are we not? There is some form of something that comes at us. And so you know, what, what I want to do this morning is just simply do two things. I want you to see the significance of Christ's temptation and what that means for us. And the second thing, I want you to recognize that you know, Satan has a plan. Satan has a, 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 an ultimate aim, which he works in that effort to defeat us. I, I want you to understand Satan's ultimate aim, his ultimate goal um, in, in temptation. Because if you understand these two things, that this perhaps will help to shift a paradigm for you a little bit and get you begin to, to recognize not only what he's up to, but what Christ has already done for you, okay? So, so, so let's talk first about the significance of what Christ, what Jesus' temptation in the wilderness means to us. See, Mark weaves into his account this shared history that we all have as readers of Scripture, of the Old Testament, drawing parallels see, between these, the Hebrew scriptures and the life of Jesus. You see, in Genesis, the Spirit moves. It hovers over the face of the waters. And then God speaks the, the world into being. And humanity, humanity is created and history is, is launched. And what's the very next thing that happens in Genesis? The tempter comes into the garden. Satan tempts the first humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden of Eden. Now here in Mark, here in Mark, where we've, where we've, where we've read recently in the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit again is over the water at Jesus' baptism, and God speaks in the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's a new humanity that is coming in Christ and history is going to be altered. And immediately the pattern continues here with Satan coming to tempt Jesus. 
in the wilderness. And for how long? For 40 days and nights. That's a hugely significant number in the Old Testament, is it not? Comes up again and again and again. Where, but Jesus is here for 40 days and 40 nights. He is being tempted continually during that period. And, and then Mark adds that he is among, he is amongst the wild animals and the angels are attending. They are ministering to him. And Mark's reference to the invisible beings, the presence of angels, I think points in my view to just how cosmic the battle and how significant this battle is that's going on in the wilderness. This is a struggle for our very lives in the wilderness. If you want to read a really good book on temptation, well, there's really two. Pick up the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. How many of you have read the Screwtape Letters? Awesome, okay? If you haven't read it, now, it's in a little bit of an archaic language because he was writing back in the time of like World War II and, and, so the, the, and, he's, and he's an Englishman. But if you can kind of begin to get into the flow of C.S. Lewis, you, you, you will come to an understanding of what temptation, how that really looks in our lives and the devices that the enemy uses. But there's another really good, good book on temptation written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in prison. And, and it's called Creation and Fall and Temptation. Creation, the creation and fall and temptation. And Bonhoeffer says, there are really only two temptations in Scripture. When you boil it down, there are only two temptations in Scripture. There's the temptation in Genesis 3, the temptation of Adam and and Eve that takes place in the garden And then there's the temptation of Jesus. In contrast, it takes place in the lonely wilderness. The first story, Bonhoeffer says, of temptation led to man's fall, his defeat. The second, Christ's temptation led to the downfall of Satan. It was Satan's fall out of power. All other temptations, Bonhoeffer says, in human history have to do with one of these two. All other temptations in all of our human history have to do, in all of the, you know, all of the temptations, all of the stories of, of men in Scripture, and our stories all have to do with these two. Either we are tempted in Adam, and we are, when we are tempted in Adam, we are left in that desolate place, and we are helpless, and, and we are hopeless, and we, we fall. In Adam, we are doomed to failure, or we are tempted in Christ, the Christ who now indwells the believer is the one who is tempted and we do not have to fall. We do not have to fail.
What Bonhoeffer is saying is that temptation for the Christian believer is different than the experience of the natural or the moral man. The natural man who knows nothing of the work of Christ and you know, and, and his finished work on a cross. Or the moral man, you know, the do-gooder, the one who's going to earn his own way, right? Who's going to try so desperately hard to get it right that God will just have to accept him. And Bonhoeffer says that, that man is left to himself in his own wilderness and he will fall. But the Christian... The Christian has in him, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God himself in the Christian enters into any temptation that we face. And it is he that is tempted within us. And so, is, does it make sense that Paul, I mean, that James would say in, in, in his letter to the church, you know, when you are tempted, submit yourself therefore to God, the Christ in you, resist the devil, and he has no choice but to do what? Hightail it out of there. Trust me, Satan ain't afraid of you. Who's he afraid of? Why does he run? Because the believer has Christ in here. And when the life is then submitted to the Christ who's within, who indwells, and then we stand in resistance, we are never alone in temptation. Do you get it? All right. I, I think you need to take some time this week and let that seep in a little bit. Because the enemy seeks to alienate us from that truth, doesn't he? He gets us thinking, we're all alone out there. Our needs are not getting met, and we're isolated, and we're lonely, and we're hungry, and we're... And you know what? God, where are you? And sometimes it feels that way in our trials, doesn't it? But what does Scripture teach us? The gospel is in the finished work of Christ that he went out into battle for us in the wilderness and he won. He did not yield. And a believer who puts their faith and trust in him, inviting Christ to be in their life, will never go into battle We'll never go into the wilderness place, the place of trial, or the place of, of, of temptation alone. The second thing I want you to see this morning is Satan's ultimate aim in temptation. It was to separate Jesus from the Word of God and to do that as quickly as possible. Satan's aim was to separate Jesus from the Word of God and to do that as quickly as possible. Before the Word takes root. 
read this narrative once again in its context. Jesus comes out of the water of baptism in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, the voice of God. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well Please, can you think of anything that would have been more incredibly affirming than to hear the voice of God saying, you are my son, I love you, and I'm so pleased. And immediately, the Spirit allowed him, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. Satan tries to steal the word tries to separate us from the word of God that's his essential and ultimate plan think about it just think about it for a minute okay in Genesis when he appears in the garden and he comes up next to Eve what are the first words out of his mouth Did God really say that? Question the word of God. In the wilderness, with Jesus, Satan demonstrates his clear familiarity with Scripture because he quotes Scripture back to Jesus. He twists it, of course. He always twists it. But in those three temptations recorded in Matthew and Luke, each time Satan came after Jesus, what did, how did Jesus answer? With the Word of God. You get it? When Satan comes at you and I, he tries to separate us from what God has said. From the word of God. Because he knows if we're anchored. And we've got roots down in the word of God. What happens? We'll know who we are. Who's with us. Who stands with us. And we won't give in. So he seeks. To separate us. From the word of God. Now here's the application. Believer. You should fully expect. That every time. God speaks with some clarity. In your life. That that will be tested. Almost immediately. You following me? If it happened with Jesus. You're my beloved son. Who will please. Boom, immediately. Let's put that one to the test. Count on it. If you hear with clarity, if you're in a service one Sunday and somebody's preaching and the, and the Spirit of God 
draws you in and focuses your eyes or your ears somewhere and God speaks and says, that's for you. You you can count on within hours, within hours, not days, not weeks, not months, that will be put to a test. I'd even go so far to say that God might even ordain the test. You, you see in the text we just read, it, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and allowed him into the very place where he knew he would encounter Satan. Now, God, though God never tempts anyone, you know, the word for trial, the word for temptation are really the same word in the Greek. The difference between a trial and a temptation is how you and I respond to it. Because in, in the midst of a you know, of a pressurized situation, a trial, what, what comes to the surface in us may be something that's down internally in us, some, some greed or lust or, or want or desire of our own that Satan can tap into. But you can count on when God speaks with clarity, expect that to be put to a test. So a week ago, in this service, we were having communion, and um, and I mentioned to y'all that as I finished reading through the Bible, because we had that plan to read through the Bible last year, and I got into the very last chapter on the reading plan, Isaiah sixty-six, and my eyes focused on Isaiah sixty-six and verse two, you know where it says, "Here's what the Lord, the Lord God, is looking for. He's looking for a man who is humble." submissive or contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And, and the message that I brought here had everything to do with how God spoke that and, 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 and laid that upon you know, my heart personally. I don't come up here and preach very often where, I, you know, where that hadn't had to run through my heart. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I preach it to me first, okay? That, that's what I'm trying to tell you. I, I, you know what I'm saying? I focused on those verses, and I just kept coming back to those verses because I thought, that, that's for me. The, the Lord wants me to understand that he is what he's looking for. His eyes are roving throughout the whole. He's looking for a man who will be humble, contrite in spirit, submissive in spirit, and who will tremble at, at my word. And so God spoke that clearly to me. And then, and then Tuesday morning, I opened an email from, uh, from a friend. Some of you know that um, I've, had, uh, I've been working with a spiritual director in my life for probably 19 to 20 months. And uh, a wise sage. He's much older than I. But he really is. He's a very wise man. His name's Roy. And uh, um, Roy is married to a beautiful lady, been married 55 years to a beautiful lady named Karen. And so Roy and I were having a cup of coffee at the end of October this year. And, and when Roy walked into the room, he seemed so subdued and, and just quieter. Just not, he, just, he was not himself. And so I said, Roy, what's, what's going on with you? He said, he said, well, I just 
got back from the doctor and Karen had uh, this pain in her shoulder and so we took her to the doctor and they started they did some x-rays which led to an MRI and they discovered a tumor on her shoulder he said he said but Dave that wasn't it they discovered four tumors and one of them was on the back of her pancreas and uh, so we talked and so here was the guy that you know that has been mentoring me holding me accountable you know seeking to drive truth into my heart you know on a regular basis I mean for the last 19 months and and he was hurting you know that morning and, and I said, Roy, is there anything I can do? And he said, he said, Dave, if you don't mind, would you just pastor uh, Karen and I while we walk through this? Would you just be our pastor right now? And I said, yeah, sure, anything, anything. So Tuesday morning, I opened up this email and, uh, from a friend and uh, over the weekend, last weekend, um, Karen began to have some complications and they rushed her to the emergency room, um, to the hospital. And, uh, and they began to talk immediately. You know, just in a period of three months now, um, she is going down so fast. And, and trust me, she's a beautiful Christian. I mean, I can't talk with her without her bringing up how grateful she is and how thankful she is. To the father. I mean, she's just, you know, godly lady. Um, but it seems now that it's it's like this disease is like this train that's out that's just it's, it's running now uncontrollably down the tracks at a rapid at a rapid speed. And I got to tell you, I headed for McKinney, and I felt so insignificant and so ill-equipped I felt I saw I felt so um, unequipped to handle that situation I, I can't tell you you know I'm just saying the the, the self-doubt the uh, I'm just I, I honestly was just overwhelmed Tuesday morning knowing that somehow I had to drive toward McKinney but I was just I was literally I I just I was almost paralyzed internally. And I went through several days of that just churning, and Deb watched it happen, you know, just that churning in me, you know, that of just not knowing what to do or how to do it and feeling so ill-equipped, feeling, you know, feeling like, uh, you know, like, here I am. I, I, this guy's my mentor. I mean, this guy is a guy that I really look up to. You know, he knows how to do this with one hand tied behind his. I can't pastor them in this. And then Thursday morning in my quiet time, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God said to me, Dave, and the Spirit of God took me right back to Isaiah 66 and verse 2 and said, Dave, you're right. You're inadequate in yourself. You're right. In yourself and left to yourself, you're a failure. <laughs> you know? Dave, this isn't about you. 
This is about you learning to rely on me. Will you trust me? Will you let me lead? And I realized in that moment, see, that... And I'm not always sure how this works. Sometimes the Lord knows the valley that we're about to walk through. And he gives us a clear word right before we get to the front of the valley. Like maybe the Lord just knew Jesus was going to have to go into the wilderness and, be, and have everything thrown at him and be tempted. And so right before he went, the Lord just said, Now, son, let me tell you, I love you. I'm with you. You are, you, you bless my life. You're, I, you are my beloved son. I think sometimes it may be that he knows we're about to enter into a really dark valley, a really difficult trial, a, a, a really desolate, barren, even lonely kind of place. And so he speaks some truth into us to cling to. Now, Satan would like to rip it out because that's what Satan does. And sometimes, sometimes he just speaks and then he engineers a circumstance in our life or he calls attention to the fact that he is at, you know, putting that, the focus on the word of God that he's already spoken and he's just saying, are you going to trust me and believe me in this? Because our life our health spiritually is dependent upon us hanging on to the promises of God, the spoken word of God as the Spirit of God applies it to our heart. He's not interested in raising up Bible scholars who have a lot of knowledge. The meat of the word for him is experiential knowledge, is the applied word of God in real life, in real life situations. And so when he speaks, he speaks, expect that to be tested until we come to more fully understand that we can trust him with our lives. The temptation of Jesus is about him going out into the wilderness that we created because we destroyed the garden. And he goes out there and he wins for us. And Satan no longer has a free ride or free reign from this point on after the cross and the resurrection of Jesus he's on a short leash you get it that's why Paul can say with confidence there is no temptation taking you 1 Corinthians 10 13 no temptation taking you but such as is common to men it's like everybody has that okay but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with every temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What's he saying? 
you can face anything with Christ when he's with you because he supplies the victory and Satan is on a short leash. Think about those two things. If you're a believer, if you're a Christ follower, the Spirit of Christ indwells you so you never enter into any difficult place alone. You have the power of Christ in you. His victory. Past tense victory. Victory already won for you. Secondly, if the enemy is at work in your life, he's trying to do one thing primarily, and that is to pull the Word of God out of your life, pull you away from the Word of God. You believe me? Christian, you know that. There were a bunch of us that started out reading through the Bible last year. Some of us got about three weeks. Because the enemy is so dang clever, he'll distract you by a million things, won't he? You say, man, that word, that's really important, really important. You know, and then in a very short period of time, you know, he, 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 just, he just seeks to drive that little wedge to get us out of the word of God. So as you start this year, as we began this year, Let's make this year another year that we root our lives in the Word of God. That we grow deeper in understanding of His Word. Get involved in that 9 o'clock Bible study with Don and Deb, all right? Look for that opportunity, you know, for that place where you can not just deepen your understanding, where you can begin to hear God's voice so that you know that, you know, in hearing that voice, that He is doing a work in you that he will allow to be tested and proven.